Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan. I'm here as usual with Benjamin Red. How are you, Ben, today? I'm sad. We, we had a very, very big thing happen this week. The death of Oscar, the family pet of the Jumblat family. Yeah. Uh, Oscar was sort of like a, a big social media presence. Yeah, the profile pictures of Jumblat are with, with Oscar. He's been, we've been seeing this, this dog on TV for years and years. Whenever Jumblat has a guest or someone, or someone, for some reason, the media is there. And we'd see him, you know, in meetings or around meetings, just enjoying his time. Yeah, I, I would say Oscar was easily the most famous dog in Lebanon. Totally. Yeah, so I, I think that this is really big news. Not everybody agrees. Uh, Kareem Makdizi, who uh, was one of my former professors uh, at AUB, he said, why is this news? He tweeted this. We, we both saw this tweet. And, yeah. and sorry, Kareem, it just is. It just is. You know, usually you're right about things, but not not on this one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's not real news, but it doesn't have to be, right? It's just a, a story that a lot of people can see and know what's like kind of understand, you know, as as opposed to most political stories in Lebanon where you have to analyze a lot of things. Yeah, a dog died. It's sad. Willie Jumblatt really loved him. He expressed his sadness. That's it. How the fuck do we segue now? <laughs> <laughs> so basically this episode is, the first part of this episode is a bunch of news that have nothing to do with each other. So there are no segues, no transitions. Yeah, we're, we're just going to smash cut now to Syria. It was the eighth <laughs> anniversary of the Syria war uh, this past week. And uh, clearly, like, things are winding down over there. We, we had news about uh, the defeat of ISIS, or, or so they claim this week. Um, and certainly, like, uh, if you look at, like, the overall scale, Assad has basically won the war at this point, unless something drastic changes. And, and we see this also from the other side. This past week, there, there was uh, a small gathering of activists at, uh, at Martyr Square to protest this. And as... My colleague, uh, Abby Sewell at the Daily Star reported, one of the activists sort of described it thusly, the revolution as it was in the beginning, peaceful in the form of protest is over, and the armed revolution also is over. Now we have a new form of revolution, which is struggle in international forums and the peaceful struggle inside Syria by way of civil society and community initiatives. So we're seeing a definite pivot from like the Syrian opposition or at least parts of the Syrian opposition to be, okay, well, we, we've lost the armed side of things and we're going to need to move into a new phase of, of battle, which is like more activism. Yeah, but what's uh, sad to me, for example, in, in the quote that you mentioned now, is the fact that now you have to do like, instead of politics, you have to do civil society stuff and community initiatives, which we kind of have in Lebanon since after the end of the civil war, political activism was not really a thing anymore. And everything good was channeled, the good energy, the political energy was ch- channeled into like civil society and community initiatives, uh, which is something that we are paying the price for now, because having like real political struggle is the only way to actually achieve like change in a society where there's a state and this hierarchies that exist. So, now we're kind of struggling with the fact that most of our people who would be political activists are involved in civil society organizations with uh, models and and uh, processes that cannot replace actual political activism. So when when I when I listen to you now, I kind of I can I can foresee this thing happening in Syria in the next year, especially with the repression of the Assad regime of any uh, serious political alternative coming from the political activist himself. Yeah. <laughs> Also, we had news out of Tripoli this week. Uh, in case you forgot, there is an election, an, an election coming up on April 14th. And so a couple of weeks ago, we had news. We were off last week, so we didn't cover this. Ashraf Rifi is out. 
He reconciled with Hariri. He's not going to be running. Nizar Zaka, who is a, uh, a Lebanese who is imprisoned in Iran right now, was in briefly. And then the Interior Ministry clarified that no, his candidacy is not valid because he's not in the country here. Uh, so he's out. Yahya Mauloud, uh, who is with Tahalif Watani, he was a candidate in last year's election. Uh, he has declared. And we also had news this this past week that they will be using pre-printed ballots in the election, That's which great. is a, a, a yeah a big step forward. In in the 2018 elections, they used pre-printed ballots for the first time ever in the history of the country. Uh, so what what happened before this is that literally there would just be blank sheets of paper that you could write names on or you bring a piece of paper in in most cases mm. that those pieces of paper were given by political parties before you went into the electoral booth and so it sort of made it easier to tell who somebody was voting for yeah based on what paper they were carrying and sometimes they had marks like for example pink papers distributed by in this specific village so they know that pe- these people voted for this uh, polit- political party or candidates Right. So as far as democratic elections go, it was a, a huge step forward in the 2018 elections mm-hmm. to finally have the preprinted ballots. There was a question this time around whether that would actually happen or not, because we're going back to a, it's, it's a single seat. So it's majoritarian. Obviously, you can't do uh, a, a proportional representation for a single seat. Um, so there's a question whether we would also go back to having a system uh, uh, without the preprinted ballots. But uh, cabinet came out and uh, we learned that no, they will have preprinted ballots, um, and and also like I think this is just this is another win it seems to me for the inter- the new interior minister Rael Hassan. Yeah, I mean uh, she had a choice and she made the right one for sure. Yeah, yeah. Did she she keeps on racking up these wins here? It, as far as this goes, uh, as far as opening the debate on you know civil marriage, she also tweeted this past week about uh, the nationality campaign. And also taking down the barriers around Beirut and other areas, you know, credit where credit's due. Uh, Rayel Hassan has has really, you know, gotten off to a good start at the Interior Ministry, I think. We also had a major press conference uh, from Paula Yaoubian, who is uh, an MP, a civil society MP, uh, the only one that was elected to parliament, MP for East Beirut. Uh, and she came out swinging this week, this past week against her former party, Sabah, and Gibran Basile. So basically, this press conference came in the context of 10 or 15 days of attacks on Polay Aubian, mostly on social media, by people affiliated with political party Sabah and with uh, FPM. FPM seems really kind of um, eager to bring her down, to destroy her credibility, because she has very wide credibility. And the poll, for example, done by Sar al-Wa'ad, this uh, show by Marcel Ghanem, showed that she has over 60% favorability rating and while she speaks against most politicians. So she's going up. She's been going up since the election. And uh, FPM is interested in bringing, him down, uh, bringing her down. At the same time, Sabah last week, or the week before, actually, they de- disowned her and they said, like, she's no longer our MP. She's an independent MP because of one, two, three, four. And then after that, both sides, Sabah and FPM at the same time, were kind of mobilizing online to kind of destroy her credibility as much as possible. And one of the things they did, one of the things we know that Sabah did, or a member of Sabah, is film a video in which her former driver talks about how she's not 
she hasn't been a good person after the elections, etc. Without, without saying anything substantive, except that he used to take her to uh, Beit al-Wasat, where Hariri lives, to meet Uqab Saqr, a politician that is affiliated with Hariri, a Shiite politician that's affiliated with Hariri, who Paula is very good friends with. And then saying some other things, they're not accusations of anything, but she said, he said, for example, that she's very rich, she owns houses in France and the US, etc. And people have been using these things against her. So what she did is showed a video, a CCTV footage, I think, in which a leading member in Sabah, Eli Abdel-Nur, uh, is shown filming this person. We didn't know that before. And she zoomed in on the point where he brings out some money. We don't know if he bribed him or not. Maybe he was just paying the check. This is what Sabah is saying. Uh, but in any case, what she's, she did is basically destroy Sabah's credibility now because Sabah made this, or not the political party itself, but its leadership for sure, took this step to destroy uh, Paula's credibility in a, in a quite, you know, a dirty politics kind of way. To film her former driver saying things that are a bit ambiguous but seem to be uh, to, co- to, to cause her damage to her reputation and like to take this initiative instead of just saying, okay, it's, she's not affiliated with us and that's it. And doing this whole campaign against her makes people feel like Sabah is really doing the politics that it does not claim to represent. So this after this happened, after she showed the video on the press conference, they announced that Sabah's membership in uh, the in the coalition has been suspended. Um, so Sabah for a bit now can no longer participate in coalition unless until uh, another decision is made, a final decision about their membership in the coalition and about the coalition itself. I just want to note one quick thing here that the allegations against Paula Yaobian, you know, the, the, like the fact that she's friends with Oab Sa'ar is it, that's not a new thing. These the the rumors about her having properties and everything elsewhere, that's not anything new. It, it's just they have brought all this stuff out into the open in a way that is kind of unseemly, it seems. Yeah. And 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 also it, it's offered Yaobian a chance to respond to these things directly, which she did at the press conference, right? Yeah. Yeah, saying, like, I only have one foreign property. It's in the U.S. I sold uh, my property in Paris. And she she talked about the fact that she's rich. She said, yes, I mean, I have money most than most of the people who support me, but that's not the question. It's not the question of who has money or who doesn't have money. It's not... She kind of said, like, it's not class struggle that matters, which I completely disagree with. But she, what she said and did what was actually correct, which is is that not everyone who's rich is, you know, a bad person because he's rich. It depends on his politics and what he stands for, etc. And also she said that we all breathe the same air, which makes it, which so it doesn't make any difference if you're rich or poor. And that's literally the only way it doesn't make any difference if you're rich or poor. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Um, one of the fun things that came out of this uh, press conference, though, was that she revealed a document that showed that Gibran Basile had paid 9,500 pounds, or, or rather the, the, the foreign ministry had paid 9,500 pounds for Gibran Basile to stay in, like, the first-class lounge or something in Heathrow Airport, uh, which, I, I, I mean— it, it, it is kind of funny because all the politicians right now are talking about like fiscal austerity and how we need to, you know, cut down on waste and everything. But in, in the grand scheme of things, this is a rather small expenditure. Uh, also this week, cabinet met. Uh, they agreed on military appointments and they also, uh, Nada Bustani, the, uh, the energy minister, presented the electricity plan, the long awaited electricity plan to the cabinet. Reportedly, this involves building two more main power plants at Salata and Zahrani, um, in addition to the new Deramar plant. 
so we've got uh, one Christian plant, one Sunni plant, one Shiite plant, it seems. Uh, <laughs> they, they, each, they, they need about 18 months to be built, like once the things get rolling. Um, and then once they're completed, supposedly the plants at Zouk Mikhail, uh, Jie, and Zahrani, which are like massively polluting, would be decommissioned. Also, part of the plan would be upgrading infrastructure, especially like transformer stations and building new ones. And temporary capacity would be generated at many of these stations. The, the, the way the finances would work is that it wouldn't be a, like a build, operate, transfer type scheme, supposedly, according to reports. It would be a purchasing agreement. So the Lebanese government agrees we're going to purchase so much electricity at this price for X period of time. And supposedly the the amount that the government would pay is eight cents per kilowatt hour and then turn around and sell it to consumers at 14 cents and, and that's basically flipping what the current situation is, roughly. Uh, right now, the state pays somewhere between 16 and 18 cents to produce a kilowatt hour, but then they turn around and sell it for about 9 cents. So, and, and this is one of the huge problems why electricity just really needs to be reformed. It's this huge drain on state coffers, and it, it's, it's affecting not just electricity provision in the country, because if you produce more electricity, then you're going further into the hole, right? It also affects the bottom of the 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 bottom line, the budget of the entire state, which, as we have talked about ad nauseum on this program, is like not a great, not in a great position right now. The state finances are not doing so hot. So if if this thing comes to fruition, it could theoretically sort of be, you know, two birds, one stone type of situation where you fix the electricity problems in the country, but also get on the right track towards fixing the budgetary problems. So we don't know the details of the plan yet. Uh, but the, this is what has been reported thus far. Supposedly, Siemens, GE, and Mitsubishi are all interested in doing all or part of this. And if you if you are on Twitter, if you're on Lebanese Twitter, then you've noticed the ads from General Electric, basically promising to fix all of Lebanon's electricity. Every woes. single day, it's yeah. all over Twitter. So so read what you want to into this, but certainly General Electric is very, very bullish and very confident that this is going to happen. Yeah, it raises some questions indeed. So the cabinet formed a committee to study the the, the plan. The, the Lebanese forces has expressed concerns, and so those are going to be supposedly ironed out by this committee. The committee has a week to work on it, so as of next Thursday, um, which I believe the cabinet will be meeting on Thursday, things should be done. And Nada Bustani warned that the state is losing money all the time. They need to pass this as soon as possible. So there's uh, there's a big push right now to fix electricity to get this plan into motion. Uh, and, and so that's really where Lebanon's politicians are right now and, and where Lebanon is right now, talking about getting basic services up and running again, talking about getting the economy, you know, getting the like the ship of the economy righted. That is where literally everybody's at Everybody's talking about this, whether it's electricity or the budget or unlocking other funds related to the Paris 4 conference, all of these things. This is the topic. This is what Lebanon is talking about. However, we had somebody fly in this past week who did not want to talk about that stuff. He wanted to talk about something very, very different, something that nobody in Lebanon is really talking about right now, even though it is a hot button issue. Secretary of State, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo flew in to talk about Hezbollah and Iran. And in this episode, we're basically going to rant about that. 
Yeah, this episode will be a bit different from the ones we've been having. It's not a you know deep analysis into a specific topic. It's mostly based on the news this week that we have Pompeo here. We're just gonna rage. Yeah, yeah. Pompeo flew in Lebanon this week wearing a yellow tie. Okay, he needs a new stylist. Very, very pro resistance. I know. He's here to talk about Although Hezbollah tie, and say so, how Hezbollah mm. are so bad, and it's he's wearing a yellow tie, and people couldn't but notice it. We, we are sensitive towards these things here. Yeah, and he met a lot of people. So he, he, he came in on Friday, and it was it was like off to the races. He went and met uh, Interior Minister uh, Rael Hassan, then went to Nabi Berri's residence. Then he went to Beit al-Wasat, Saad Hariri's residence. Then he went up to Ba'abda Palace to meet with President Michel Aoun. Uh, then he came back down the hill to the foreign ministry to meet with Gibran Basile, the foreign minister, held a press conference there where they didn't take any questions. And then he met with Walid Jumblat. Uh, he met with Samir Jaja. Then he went to a dinner hosted by Michel Mouawad, an MP and son of the, the assassinated President Rene Mouawad. And, and Were you he, his driver or something? Why do you remember the order of these visits? <laughs> I'm very because, impressed. Because we did uh, research, Nizar. Oh, true, remember true. That? We did yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and today, uh, on Saturday, uh, he was slated to not meet really officials. It was more like a religious type day. He was supposed to meet, uh, I think, Elias Audi, uh, the, the, the Greek Orthodox patriarch, and supposed to visit a Greek Orthodox church. Uh, we, we don't know whether that all happened or not, but basically uh, Saturday was, was more a religious day, not, not the... Uh, not the uh, political heavy uh, stuff. He seems, All of that stuff happened on He Friday. seems to be a very uh, religious person, Pompeo. Huh? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, he's definitely part of like the Christian fundamentalist right wing in the United States. We love those. I, I mean, <laughs> that's 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 my people. That's where I come from. So <laughs> I I understand that mindset. So what is this visit about? He was in, in Israel just before coming to Lebanon. He had to fly through uh, Cypriot airspace. And uh, in Israel, Trump announced, while Pompeo was in Israel, Trump announced that he's consider- very seriously considering th- that it's you know time for the U.S. to acknowledge the occupied Golan Heights as part of, the, of Israel. Which, which is- directly contradicted what Pompeo had said like earlier in the day <laughs> to an interviewer, you know, basically he was saying no comment. And then President Trump comes out and says, oh, no, it's time. To let- let's do this. Let's just pull the trigger on this. Yeah, I love how Trump is making his foreign policy decisions. This and the Syria decision and others just seems, you know, very well studied and calculated and not at all based on conversations he has with right-wing political candidates or presidents on the phone. Never, never, never. never. So he was in Kuwait, then he was in Israel, and then he was here in Lebanon. And he said quite a few things, I think, that are interesting. Maybe it'd be good to sort of run down a, a few of those quotes really quickly. Exactly. So he only really spoke after meeting with Basile and what they called press availability, although it was not available for questions, which is not nice. And uh, Basile made a statement in the beginning uh, about the friendship between the U.S. and Lebanon. And he also talked about some points of disagreement, such as Hezbollah. And he said, for example, the U.S. considers it a terrorist organization. organization we don't we think it's a party, a party elected by a lot of people, etc. And then when Pompeo spoke, he was reading obviously his statement. He said some nice things, but then very soon after, you know, the, his intro, third paragraph, he goes into Hezbollah quite violently. And uh, basically half of his speech is, you know, Hezbollah is really terrorist. It's very, very terrorist. 
<laughs> he said terror and terrorist like six times in the, in the few minutes in which he was speaking. Um, he said Hezbollah is just a proxy for an outlaw nation, which is Iran, and it's uh, working, you know, to, to weaken the Lebanese state and to spread destruction, and that Lebanon need to have the courage to stand up to Hezbollah. And some of the things he said is, makes it seem that, you know, as if Hezbollah is an alien organization in Lebanon. You know, he said, uh, he said, for example, that Hezbollah arrived to parliament through political promises or outright intimidation of voters. I don't know what he's basing his, his, his argument on. I mean, political promises, that's politics. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what everyone does. Intimidation of voters, of course it happens, but it's not like the way that Hezbollah reached parliament. Uh, he basically yeah, undermined the credibility of Hezbollah as a political organization that represents people. That's a major part of his speech. And he criticized Hezbollah's behavior in the region as against Lebanon's interests. And here he made an argument that is made by a lot of people here as well, which is why is Hezbollah in Yemen? Why is Hezbollah in Syria and Iraq and all of these places? How does that help Lebanon and protect it? How does that help the citizens of you know South Lebanon or Eastern uh, Lebanon, etc.? He said these things and he got carried on a bit and he asked the question in his this dramatic paragraph. He asked, how does stockpiling tens of thousands of rockets and missiles in Lebanese territory for use against Israel make this country stronger? <laughs> and it's I, ridiculous. <laughs> and I find this the most self-evident like, and useless question I've ever heard. Why, yeah. do, why does it help to have like missiles and rockets against a uh, a state in which we are technically at war with. Why do, why do you want deterrence? Why do you want that? Yeah. Like, what, what's going on here? And, you know, another part of his speech, apart from uh, bashing Hezbollah, is kind of explaining what the U.S. is doing in this region. He said, Our pressure on Iran is simple. It's aimed at cutting off the funding for terrorists, and it's working. On March 8, Hassan Nasrallah begged Hezbollah supporters to make new contributions. And we believe that our work is already constraining Hezbollah activities. So basically what he's saying is he's not in Lebanon just, you know, making statements. There's a serious strategy, which is which is basically tackling every um, every part of the process in which Iran gets leverage in different countries of the region and funds its proxy organizations, etc. And then he offered Lebanon a choice. Exactly. Which is really nice of him, you know, giving us a choice. So what was the choice? As, as he put it, quote, bravely move forward as an independent and proud nation or allow the dark ambitions of Iran and Hezbollah to dictate your future. Oh, God. Scary. Very scary. Very scary. But, but th- this is the thing. I don't understand what he wants Lebanon to do. I don't get it. Hezbollah is a part of the government. It's a part of parliament. What, like, concrete steps on the ground does he want to see? Like, what what is this brave move forward as an independent and proud nation. What does that mean? I have no idea. Yeah. What are the concrete steps is, is the biggest question. And concrete what, doable steps. Yeah, doable steps. And and this question is really what's the US foreign policy in Lebanon right now? Is it really like causing confrontation with Hezbollah? Because they tried that and it didn't work. You know, we had this escalated rhetoric for years in Lebanon where even the, some people in the future may, movement started using the word terrorist to describe Hezbollah. And I remember that it was three, four years ago. And what did it bring? Nothing. It, it cannot be done this way. You know, adopting a you like an aggressive American rhetoric or narrative. At the same time, no one's going to you know, take away Hezbollah's arms because Pompeo said this is the, the choice we have to do. What What is the policy realistically? We don't know. Yeah. And, and also just implicit in this is this bizarre separation of like 
well, Lebanese are on one side and Hezbollah is this like foreign entity that is not Lebanese on the other side. When in reality, no, that's just not that is not true. That is factually false. In the last elections in 2018, Hezbollah won almost 20 percent of the vote. If you count up the preferential votes, which uh, Information International did, they get like 19.5 percent of the vote, which is more than any other single party got. And that's just Hezbollah and their like close allies like Jamila Syed. Count in Amal, count in some other March 8 allies, you get up to like 40%. And that's excluding the FPM. So if you are if you are talking about Hezbollah, you have to, first of all, fundamentally, you have to recognize reality and recognize that it has a true popular base, a true popular support here in Lebanon. And and I think this is something that, you know, credit where credits do. Uh, was done well by uh, President Aoun and uh, Gibran Basile. Yeah. You know, the, the, the Gibran Basile statement that he gave before Pompeo, I thought was probably one of the, the his better performances uh, I've ever seen him yeah. give. Yeah, is very uh, smart. Yeah, yeah. It was, a, it was a very, very well-crafted and very well-delivered statement. Yeah, I mean, the point where he was, um, in the, at the end of the speech, in the last couple of paragraphs, he was saying, you know, we might disagree on things, uh, but we agree on fundamental things like, you know, values. But these, you know, these lines that he said, like, we might disagree on resistance, but we agree on freedom. We might disagree on unilateralism, but we agree on tolerance, etc. These things that he said are, you know, a very like, smart way of uh, sliding in critique to the U.S. foreign policy right now because it's like unilateral uh, uh, anti-resistance kind of uh, rhetoric and, and action. At the same time, He's keeping this diplomatic thing of, you know, welcoming the, the guests and making sure that Lebanon has a good relationship with a friend, which is the U.S., etc., which is the official Lebanese uh, kind of foreign policy towards the United States. Keep loving the United States because they are very important in supporting the army and the internal security forces and also in giving some support in case we need it internationally when shit hits the fan. Right, right. But as far as the, the Hezbollah question is concerned... Clearly, Pompeo was not interested in engaging with this fundamental problem because, as we have pointed out, there, there was no press availability. After he gave this statement, there were no questions from the press. He didn't have any press availability. As far as I know, he gave no interviews while he was here in Beirut. Uh, contrast that with when he was in Jerusalem and he gave something like five interviews and he had press availability. There he really wanted to talk. Here he really didn't. Uh, and, and I think that this this comes back to just like the I guess like you could call it the professionalism of like the communications people at mm. <laughs> at the U.S. Department of State, because if I were at the U.S. Department of State, I would also advise don't talk to the press because it's not going to go well for you. Yeah, uh, it, it, it can't possibly go well to you at the same time, though. This means, you know, the U.S., uh, you know, my country, we go around the world preaching openness and freedom and freedom of speech and, you know, transparency and accountability for elected officials. Uh, but when we don't want to talk, we don't talk. When there is a chance to be uh, confronted by the press and we don't have to be confronted by the press, well, why do it? I'll tell you my impression. It kind of also feels like an arrogant thing to do. To go to a country and not speak to any of their journalists is something that's a bit rude. And it shows that, you know, he doesn't appreciate or think of of this host country as a place to, to, you know, interact with. He's here to send a message and a message with a lot of aggression. And then he doesn't even engage. And just diplomatically, that's rude. I, I didn't appreciate it. Yeah, and, and I think, like, 
as far as that issue goes, that brings up another really important problem with American foreign policy in the region is that it is just one track. It is single-minded. It is just how do we confront Iran? How do we confront Hezbollah? That's really it, you know, and 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 it's and it's a problem not just here in Lebanon. As, as I mentioned during the intro, like here in Lebanon, people want to talk about the economy. People want to talk about getting things back on track, which is in the long-term security interests of everybody involved, right? Well, we have the same problem uh, in Iraq. You know, Tanya Gutsuzian made this point in Le Monde Diplomatique this past week, you know, saying it's, it's the same thing in Iraq. The U.S. policy is all about countering Iran, whereas the people on the ground are concerned about electricity and water and all of these things and getting the economy back running very much here, like here in Lebanon, you know, and the United States is not playing this game, but other powers are. Yeah, because there's this you you've seen of course all these analysis that say u.s foreign policy has failed in lebanon because they could not prevent hezbollah from winning in the elections what you know of course hezbollah is going to win it's a popular political organization with a popular military wing as well and it it has very very smart social dominance and social control like mechanisms you know they have organizations that offer services to people healthcare, education things things that people really need sometimes housing they connect with people in a way that no no other organization does in Lebanon or to the same, you know, in the same kind of competence. They are a very smart political organization and uh, expecting the U.S. foreign policy to have the effect of, you know, getting rid of them is ridiculous. Expecting Lebanese politicians who are, you know, not aligned with Hezbollah but kind of uh, nice with it, like the FPM or, um, or even Hariri now, to confront Hezbollah about its military wing in a way that is very aggressive is also ridiculous. The only way that I see U.S. foreign policy working in Lebanon is, you know, through the things that, if for the interest of the U.S., not the interest of the Lebanese, yeah, is to do the things that Obama was doing, you know, sanctions and uh, political pressure to a certain extent, but mostly, you know, supporting the army and the internal security forces because if they believe that Hezbollah is really going to, you know, uh, uh, threaten the, the security of Lebanon by, you know, starting a civil war or attacking other communities or whatever. We need a good and strong army to, to protect everyone and the leg- and the legitimate institution that, you know, would be the defender of the country as a whole, not a sectarian group of it. This is what the U.S. was doing before. It makes sense that it's uh, it invests in that, these things and things like security forces. It's not true that, you know, supporting the army and the internal security forces is in a way the same thing as supporting Hezbollah. This arguments that a lot of people in Washington are have been making for the last few years at least are really ridiculous. I don't think I don't think that they really know what's happening here. I don't think that they have any kind of vision for a realistic foreign policy in Lebanon. No, I I totally agree. It is it is amateur hour in Washington as far as Lebanon goes. Uh, it's it is absolutely ridiculous. Not only po- the policy, but also I'm I am sorry, but this proved it with Pompeo's visit. The the message and the deliverer, the way that message was delivered. I mean, just look at some of the quotes from this guy and and some of the things that he said in this statement. And and you just have to you know it's facepalm. He, he said so many things that were just divorced from reality. Honestly, you know, he said Beirut is a wonderful city and Lebanon is a once rich nation. We're hoping to restore that. He uh, called uh, Lebanon. It's a once truly proud, successful economic powerhouse, which I'm not sure when he is referring to. I, you, you probably have to go back uh, a couple hundred years, if not further, <laughs> to, 
to get to that. <laughs> but this is, but this is, by the way, the last thing about Lebanon, like being nostalgic about its past, is is really common among a lot of people. Even in Lebanon, they think that Lebanon at some point was this rich country. No, they were the poor were hidden, you know, in rural areas. It was not really a rich country. It yeah, was not yeah. like a powerhouse at all. It was just that at this specific moment proxy like uh, like foreign powers did not need to have proxy war or one of them was not strong enough to to be as involved as it is today it was never this peaceful and you know egalitarian or s- prosperous kind of s- space right no. right and and we we've we've talked quite a bit about the myth of of Lebanon yeah. past on this show before right uh he also this quote i just I, I really couldn't believe, you know, he said he was bragging about how much the U.S. gives in military aid to Lebanon. He said, you know, the uh, in 2018, uh, the U.S. provided more than $800 million in assistance to Lebanon. A fair question. What did Hezbollah and Iran contribute? They contributed coffins of young Lebanese returning from Syria and ever more Iranian weapons, which was just so extraordinarily tone deaf, I thought, because it either... Either you are against Hezbollah and it doesn't really hit home for you, probably, the the deaths of Hezbollah uh, fighters in Syria, or you are pro-Hezbollah. And this is just... Insulting. Uh, yeah, it's salt, in, it's salt in the wound, you know? But I think, I think this is the problem. I think, as you said earlier, or hinted at least, that Pompeo thinks that there is something called Lebanese people that is separate from Hezbollah. And he speaks as if the Lebanese people are waiting for a hero to come and say, this is what we think about Hezbollah, we don't like it. You know, there is a sentence in his statement that I really thought was hilarious because it's so dramatic. He said, Hezbollah stands in the way of the Lebanese people's dreams. You know, this this kind of narrative that the Lebanese are basically trying to build a better country, but then there is Hezbollah. You know, I for example, I, I, I'll tell you from my experience, most people think that Hezbollah as a project, and I do think as well, that Hezbollah as a project is not compatible with a strong Lebanese state, for sure, because it, it's the biggest militia, and in, in probably one of the biggest militias in the region, and the most powerful one, and it's very effective at political dominance. It has a, a very, very conservative ideology in some places, extremely conservative and fundamentalist. I dislike Hezbollah in, any, in all possible ways. But we're not waiti- waiting for an American hero to come here and say, you know, we believe in you and your dreams and your ambitions and your courage. You should stand up for this. No, this is not the question we are dealing with. We are dealing with a fundamental, you know, political and, and social dilemma in the country. And how we're dealing with it is, is something that we're still learning. And it's going to take years. But this is the process because it takes years everywhere. When you have guerrilla organizations and entrenched in societies, when you have a lot of people believing in the need for these guerrilla organizations, you need to deal with them smartly, not have a war because it didn't work in Colombia. It won't work anywhere in the world, right? Yeah. And, and this is just yet another example of the U.S. just talking on a totally different plane from from the reality of Lebanese politics. They they clearly don't understand. They don't know what's going on. And frankly, I don't think that they really care. I mean, Lebanon, let's face it, is a rather small player in the region. Um, and they just haven't devoted the resources to have smart, effective policy here. Yeah. And he should change his tie. <laughs> well, the fact that he was wearing a tie, though, means that he's obviously anti-Iranian, right? Oh, totally. That's a good point. That's a good point. Balance. Oh, he's balanced. But See? are you sure we want to end this podcast on this point? 
<laughs> we, we took the level of analysis really low with that one. <laughs> <laughs> this should be the new standard. We're we're, we're just going to rant now about things. That's that's what the Lebanese politics podcast. Now. <laughs> at, at, at least when uh, a Secretary of State rolls into town and <laughs> sort of fails on so many levels. <laughs> so I guess that's it for this week. So tune in next Monday. And until then, I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Benjamin Rad. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.